Our text this morning is found in Acts chapter 19. If you will take your Bibles and turn there. Acts chapter 19. It's been an exciting journey thus far as we've gone through Acts, seeing so many exciting things about the early days when the church was established. I cannot imagine life without Christ. And that is for many reasons. Certainly, there would be no hope of ever being reconciled to a holy God. And of course, if I didn't know Christ, I wouldn't even know that that was an issue. Except down deep in my conscience, we know according to Romans 1, it would be a nagging inclination that I would have to suppress in unrighteousness. Without Christ, there would be no hope of heaven, only the promise of hell. Without Christ, there would be nothing to restrain sin in my flesh. Without Christ, I would have no understanding of God. I would have no understanding of life. I would have no understanding of history. I would have no understanding of the future. Everything would just be kind of a random, ongoing existence. No purpose in living. I would have to follow the philosophy of many of days gone by that would say we just need to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And the Christians say, stand before a holy God in judgment. And on it goes. But dear friends, there is yet another tragedy of life, a great tragedy from which Christ has delivered me and all who know and love him. And that is the bondage of boredom. Non-believers live such incredibly boring lives. Have you ever thought about that? They spend most of their lives working hard to earn Enough money so that someday they can buy a few toys and go on a few vacations and then eventually retire so they can kind of play around in their garden or go golfing or fishing or try to find something to do until they die. Wow, how exciting. And during all those years... They spend countless hours going out to eat, at least in our culture, watching thousands of hours of television, thousands of hours of movies, playing video games, manicuring their yards, and being entertained by thousands of hours of sports, where you sit around in the comfort of your home and you stuff your mouth with popcorn and Coke and you... Watch other people play games while you wear their jerseys and live their life vicariously. Isn't life fun? Well, some try to avoid all of this by pursuing extreme sports. It's interesting. I have seen this grow over the last maybe 20 years. People, for example, that will go back and forth on these steep inclines with skateboards and bicycles and and snowboards and even motorcycles, seeing how high they can possibly go and do some incredible maneuver and hope that they don't land on their head and break their neck. That's one way of relieving the boredom of life. Or others have an even more clever idea. They will go to a bridge and tie a giant rubber band on their feet and jump off and see how close they can get to the bottom of the water without hitting it. Or for the really brave, you climb on a bull and you see how long you can stay on that critter without him goring you with his head. And then when you fall off, see how quickly you can get away before he gores you or stomps on you. And then, of course, for those who are not so brave, there are the endless amusement parks where you can go and pay large sums of money to stand in line for hours in order to ride some contraption that will elevate your pulse and your adrenaline to the point of sheer terror. Well, we live in an age of endless opportunities for pleasure and for entertainment. And yet, dear friends, people are bored out of their minds. 
Depression continues to be on the rise. Prescription drug abuse. Just think of all the people that you know that are medicated today. Illegal drugs, alcohol abuse, suicide, violence. I have had occasion to spend a lot of time and interact with people that are extremely wealthy. And constantly I see that they're looking for something that money can buy to satisfy that ache in their soul. I know men that have paid six figures for a shotgun. That have paid seven figures for a horse that they can't even ride. People that buy private jets and yachts and exotic sports cars and antique cars and then build large warehouses to put them all in and to buy vacation homes in some exotic place. But they're never satisfied. They're never content. They're never happy. It's like they're trying to frantically pack into life all they can because they know it's soon going to be over and that's it. Maybe. You go to the beaches in Florida, which is commonly called the burial ground for the rich and famous. And you can look at old people who have had all that life could possibly offer. And they're unhappy. They're in a catatonic stupor, kind of looking out over the ocean, rocking away, waiting to die. How sad to be bored all of your life. To have nothing to really live for. To just chase after fleeting pleasures. No lasting joy. Doing things that are utterly bereft of eternal significance. No thanks. I don't want any part of that life. But you know, it's not so for Christians. If you think about it, our life is filled with adventure. Or at least it should be if you're following Christ. All you have to do, for example, is open up the word. And you will find a, a, an endless reservoir of exciting, exhilarating truths that explain where we came from, what God is up to, what he can do in our life, what he is doing today and what he has promised to do in the future. I cannot imagine anything more exciting, quite frankly, than opening up the word of God and studying it. And then living our life for the glory of God, serving him, not ourselves. And sure, there's going to be inevitable pain. There's going to be suffering. But that is never something that robs us of our joy and an abiding sense of contentment. Our life is anything but boring. How fascinating it is to even look back on our life even a few years ago and say, wow, isn't it amazing how God was at work in my life? What an adventure it is to know that everything that we do is being orchestrated by a God who loves us. To live for the glory of God. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And as believers, we're, we're, we're content. Well, that's true wealth. It doesn't matter how much we have or don't have. We're filled with joy because we're serving the Lord, because we're laying up our treasures in heaven. At the end of Paul's life, he would write in Second Timothy four, beginning in verse six, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. How sad to see people waste their lives. They're like a shooting star. There is suddenly a blaze in the sky for a moment, and then their lives disappear into the infinite, eternal blackness of night. Dear friends, I hope that we all have a longing to make our life count. And this is what we're going to see today as we join once again in the adventure of the Apostle Paul and those that served with him. And quite frankly, the expeditions that we see him going on, even though they vary in some ways, they parallel so much 
of what happens in the lives of all who serve the living king. Now, I'm compelled this morning to draw your attention to four categories of ministry insights that come to light in this historical narrative before us in Acts chapter 19. And these will be insights that I believe will offer encouragement uh, in our adventurous journey as we serve the living Christ. First, we're going to see a miracle of divine providence. Secondly, we will see a mandate to remember the poor and all of the reasons why that is important. Thirdly, we're going to see a madness called idolatry. And finally, we're going to see a marvel of divine intervention. Let's look, first of all, at this miracle of divine providence, where we see Paul's spirit-directed plans ultimately being orchestrated by a sovereign God through his providence. Beginning in verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, let me pause here. This is referring to the miracles that we studied last week, the miracles of Paul. Remember the evil spirits uh, attacking the charlatans and the mass conversion of the magicians, the burning of their books and all of that type of thing. After these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, it's interesting here. Paul has been in Ephesus for three years and he believes it's time to move on. He's always driven by a love for sinners who need to hear the gospel. So he ultimately says he wants to go back to Jerusalem and finally to Rome. But it's curious, as we look here, if he's going to Jerusalem, why would he go in the opposite direction to Macedonia and over to Achaia? And if you want to go to Rome, why do you go all the way back across to Jerusalem and then back to Rome? Well, the answer is very fascinating. And here we're going to see God's providence again, working in the life of the Apostle Paul, a reminder of how God works even in our lives. Now, before we look at the answer here and see what's going on, may I remind you again, God is always orchestrating the events of our lives to accomplish his purposes. And ultimately, we understand very little of what he is up to until after it has happened. Think about it. How often have have you made a decision to go in one direction? And maybe it's a direction that, you know, is pleasing to the Lord only to discover that a sovereign God modifies your plans and you think you were going over here, but ultimately he has you over here. And typically it's in a place that is far greater than you would have ever imagined. Proverbs 16, 9, we read, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And in Proverbs 19, verse 21, many plans are in man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And also in Proverbs 20 and verse 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Oh, dear Christian, what an exciting adventure it is to live for Christ. We have no earthly idea what the unfolding plans of divine providence might look like. We, we just really don't know. So what do we do? We walk by faith. We obey his commands to love him, to evangelize the lost, to equip the saints, and so, so on and so forth. And we walk by faith. This is what happened with Paul. So he's desiring now to go to Jerusalem, but only after he goes back to Macedonia and Achaia. And what we're going to see is he's going to do that He's going to go back in the opposite direction to take a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. And to be sure, he would eventually make it back to Jerusalem and even to Rome, but he would do so in a route that he would never have imagined. We will see later that when he does get to Jerusalem, his witness would incite a violent riot, resulting in all kinds of false charges against him, that would eventually cause him to have to appeal to Caesar. 
We will see that under military guard, he would eventually arrive in Rome. I'm sure he would have never planned it that way. Before he gets to Rome, he will survive a shipwreck where God would have a minister to Roman soldiers as well as to the lost on a little island called Malta. We will see that in their presence, he will be bit by a poisonous viper on the hand that brings him no harm. We will see that he heals a man dying of a fever, the fever of dysentery. And after three months, he resumes his trip. He makes it to Rome and ultimately he arrives there in chains, continuing to preach the gospel, solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. And what's interesting to me is despite enormous dangers and incessant opposition, Paul was driven onward to Jerusalem. Driven onward to Rome. In fact, later in Acts 20, beginning of verse 22, we read this. And now he says, behold, bound in spirit. In other words, because of my single minded devotion to fulfill what God has called me to do, I am compelled to do do, to do something. Behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now, friends, think about that. Can you imagine that? I mean, how encouraging would that be? Yes, keep following me, keep serving me, but I want you to know that bonds and afflictions await you. It reminds me of Peter. Remember, the Lord told him he was going to be crucified. And for 40 years, he serves the Lord faithfully. How can that happen? Because they know the glory that awaits. They know the purpose for which they do all things. And how exciting it must have been for them to watch God at work, even in the midst of those adversities. To experience His presence. To have an opportunity to commune with the living God. To be able to witness His power to save idolaters To watch him sanctify saints. To watch him prove himself powerful in their lives. Oh, friends, what an adventure. How much more exciting than doing flips on a motorcycle. Now, let me digress for a moment. It's interesting that Paul's criteria for everything that he did was to bring glory to God. To advance the kingdom of God through evangelizing sinners and equipping saints. That's a good way of thinking about it. That's what our life is all about. Evangelizing sinners and equipping saints. That gives glory to God. You want to ask yourself, is this the driving force of my life? Is this why I get up and go to work in the morning or get up and do whatever I do? Paul said, whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. First Corinthians 10, 31. In other words, I'm going to serve the Lord in these ways, come what may. Everything else that I'm about is kind of secondary. I, you know, I have to make a living. I'll, I'll make my tents as we have to do our things. But ultimately, what I am about is giving glory to God. You know, the litmus test to whether or not you are doing this is found in the word contentment. Are you content with what you have? Paul was. Isn't it interesting? He never tried to build some ministry empire. He never had around him some entourage that carried his bags and drove him around in some flashy chariot. He never had some ostentatious ministry compound where people could see all that he was about and how successful he was. No, He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was driven by God's glory, not money, not pleasure, not self. In fact, he would later write to 1 Timothy something that that is important to add here. Here's what he said in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God. You hear that? Flee from them. And grammatically, it indicates it's something that you start doing and you never stop doing. And instead, he says, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Then he says something so fascinating. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Literally, he's saying, get a grip, get a grip on the things that really matter. Live in light of eternity. Transcend the temporal by looking into the eternal. This is why he would say in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So he tells Pastor Timothy, the young man, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Then he went on to say, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Beloved, there is the adventure of the Christian life. Now, practically speaking, when you make plans to go into a new career or a business venture or whatever it may, may be, you need to ask yourself the question, is what I'm doing going to ultimately maximize my time, my treasure, and my talents to bring glory to God? In other words, is what I'm doing ultimately going to make a difference for eternity? Is it eternally significant? What most people do when they go into business is ask one question. Will this make me rich? Boy, that, that, that's the wrong direction. Dear friends, there's no life in that. Solomon will tell you that. That life is all vanity if that's all you pursue. The wealthiest man that ever lived. You know, you might make a boatload of money, but you'll never be happy. You'll never be fulfilled. You'll never be content. As Paul said here, it's the uncertainty of riches. Have you ever watched rich people? They're constantly trying to hang on to what they've got. I, I know men that live or die by the stock market reports. The Wall Street Journal is their Bible. Beloved, God has promised to meet our needs. He says that he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And again, the Lord said, lay up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. And so how can each aspect of our life and business and career bring glory to God? Fulfill the Great Commission. That has to be the question. And there is only one thing that really matters in life. Please hear this. Paul understood this. There is only one thing that matters, matters in life. And that is, what have I done for Christ? That's it. Everything else is rubbish. It's wood. It's hay. It's stubble. It's worthless. I've been to funerals of wealthy men and women, for that matter. And it always strikes me, especially when they're unsaved. People will talk about all of their great exploits in life, how much money they made and how they made it and all the kind things that they did for others. But, dear friends, if they were unbelievers, none of that made any difference because none of it brought glory to God. Those people might as well have spent their whole life collecting pancakes and watching Weather Channel reruns. That's all their life amounted to. Beloved, don't live a life of trivial pursuit. Do what Paul says. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold. Get a grip on eternal life to which you were called. So, we see the miracle of divine providence here working in Paul's life. He understood all of these things. This is what drove him. And again, keep in mind now, the body of Christ is a living organism controlled by the head who is Christ, whereby each individual part is working to support the whole. And this is what we see in the second truth 
that emerges from the text, and that is a mandate to remember the poor. You see, he again now he's going back to Macedonia, going back to Achaia to take up a collection to minister to the poor in Jerusalem. And once again, we see God's providence at work here, even on behalf of the saints. Now, think about it in Jerusalem. They had had no idea that this was going on. Later in Galatians chapter two, beginning in verse nine, we read how the apostles in Jerusalem had urged Paul to remember the poor. There we read and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, Paul wrote James and Cephas and John. Who were reputed to be pillars gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Do you remember the poor? Is this a part of your adventuresome journey? Later in his defense before Felix, Paul declared in Acts 24, 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings there. He was looking back upon what we're studying here this morning. And later to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 25, he would write. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, in other words, the Jewish believers, if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go by way of you to Spain. Now, what's also interesting here is the Gentile believers, as they give financial aid to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, would therefore have an enormous impact on the unity of the church. Think about that. Think how God is putting all of this together. And like any godly man, Paul remembered the poor with loving compassion. Primarily here, the issue is the poor in the body of Christ. So Paul sends Timothy and Erasmus on ahead to make the saints aware of their need to be responsible and give to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's interesting, it was during this time that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth as well. And here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 1. He said, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. And here's how he wants it to happen. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia and perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service has been opened to me and there are many adversaries by the way, the adversaries to which he refers will be those that we'll look at here in a moment. He went on to say, now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Let no one therefore despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not all at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. So here again, beloved, is a striking reminder to all of us as believers to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling in material ways. And by the way, this is at the very core of our philosophy of giving here at Calvary Bible Church, especially as we endeavor to support those in, uh, in, in Sudan and in Kenya and in Siberia and so on. 
And it's interesting as well, in 2 Corinthians 8, we have even more insight into this period. There he begins in verse 1 to remind the Corinthian saints, he says, of the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, the term literally means crushing. And indeed, they, they were crushed, those Macedonians. 200 years of Roman bondage. In a great ordeal of affliction, here's what they did. Um, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So in other words, when he goes back to Macedonia and even Achaia, these people were poor. They were struggling, but they sacrificed for the saints in Jerusalem. He went on to say, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. I have talked with people who are leading these secret sensitive types of churches, which, as you know, I believe are definitely on the wrong course. And I've had several of them say, how do you get your people to give? Isn't it interesting here? These people are poor and they're begging with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. How, how, how do you get that to happen? And my answer is simply, I just preach the word. And as we see here, it says that they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. In other words, my answer to them is if you preach the word and if you have true believers that love the Lord and are growing in the Lord, you won't have to somehow beg them to give. They will beg you for opportunities to give. Well, this is what happened in the early church. And beloved, this must be our attitude as well. Paul finally went on to encourage the Corinthians to give, saying in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, See that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich, referring to spiritual wealth. For indeed, we are now joint heirs with Jesus. So, the saints of Macedonia and Achaia, they give liberally out of their poverty, Christ being their supreme example. And again, sacrificial giving is always a measure of genuine saving faith. So, we've seen a miracle of divine providence and um, memory now of the poor, now I want you to notice a madness called idolatry. Notice in verse 23 of Acts 19. At about that time, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way, referring to the Christian church. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. My, my, my. Here you have a businessman who's making money off the idol worship of the popular goddess Artemis, also known as Diana of Ephesus. And this, by the way, is quite different from the classical Roman Diana or the Greek equivalent of Artemis. But we won't go into that. I just want you to be aware of that. Excavations in Ephesus give us some idea of what this goddess looked like. She is a grotesque, multi-breasted statue. And on her shoulders and legs are carved reliefs of 
of, uh, of lions and bulls and rams, and she has a turret crown uh, on her head. Frankly, a chilling depiction of depravity that dominates the human mind apart from Christ. They have been able to unearth the temple at Ephesus. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a magnificent structure that was 180 feet wide and 377 feet long. It's larger than a football field. It had a roof supported by 117 60-foot columns that were six feet in diameter. And 36 of them were sculptured at the base with life-size figures. And, of course, pilgrims from all over that area would come to worship this idol, especially in the spring when they would have an annual festival. It's kind of like, if you will, the Vatican, where there's a constant flow of worshipers. And, of course, there's very, um, very many shops and religious stores there that have a lucrative business. They sell all manner of religious paraphernalia. One scholar and historian, a man by the name of Howard Voss, writes this about Diana. Quote, Diana of Ephesus represented a form of the Asian mother goddess, the embodiment of the female principle. Sounds a little bit like the feminist movement here in our culture today. The embodiment of the female principle. The goddess of fertility, he went on to say, in man, beast, and vegetation. As the mother goddess figure, she represented more than fertility, but also resurrection, the eternal return of life to the earth. She had become the patroness of maidens, of marriageable age, the helper of women in childbirth. She was also the moon goddess, the goddess of wild nature and of the hunter and fisherman. In the peasant's mind, such a divinity would ensure that his beasts and land were fruitful. To the intellectual, she presented the idea of an all-creating mother who sustained the universe, end quote. Now, this temple and all that went with it, all of the stoas and the forests that they've discovered around it was fabulously wealthy. And we know that even the upper class people, since their homes were not all that big, they would go to these places to entertain their friends in the temple gardens. And often they would serve meat that had been offered to idols, something that will be significant when you go to your study in First and Second Corinthians. So there was big money to be made. It's kind of like there'd be a Christian bookstore on every corner, except it would be an Artemis bookstore. But... Interestingly enough, as we all know, the transforming truth of the power of the gospel disrupted all of this. It threatened all of their economic security as well as the source of their pride. And notice what happens now, beginning in verse 28. And when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater. By the way, this theater they've unearthed said would, uh, they say, would have seated about 25,000 people. So they rush into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. In other words, no, 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 let's don't. Let's just don't waste your life here. I mean, this, this is crazy going in there. And also, verse 31, some of the Asiarchs, they, these were the wealthy, some of the noblemen of Asia, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. Friends, this is interesting. This is so typical of the mayhem of a mob. They're, they're, they're like sheep. You know, if you get around sheep and frankly, even cows and horses, if one of them gets spooked and starts to run, what happens? They all do. And the rest of them don't even know what they're running for, but they're going to run. This is what happens here. It's interesting, too, like um, anti-war activists and and other types of anarchists, if you go wherever they're rioting, and they've done this, there's been studies on this, and they interview the people that are doing this, you'll find that 
the vast majority of them are absolutely clueless about what the issues are. They're just there to express their anger and their rebellion. It's interesting how hate fuels hysteria. So, verse 32 says, The majority did not know for what cause they had come together. Verse 33, And some of the crowd concluded, which could be translated instructed, it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having mentioned with, or motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. So, in other words, here, maybe it would appear that the Jews were going to raise up one of their spokesmen to say, say, hey, look, you know, we, we don't agree with, with, with your idolatry either, but we, we want you to know that, that we're, we're not a part of these Christians here. They, they, they may have been uh, afraid that a pogrom would, would break out and that, you know, the people would kill all the Christians and the Jews too. We, we're not sure, but this is what happens here. So the Jews evidently raised up their man, Alexander. But verse 34, when they recognized, in other words, the crowd recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them. All as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So Demetrius now ignites a firestorm of irrational and violent rage, typical of unbelievers who are ruled by their emotions rather than the indwelling spirit of God. And here we witness this madness, violence, chaos, confusion, pandemonium, havoc. And you think, my, I wonder, wonder why they felt that strongly. Well, friends, it was not only because their economic livelihood was at stake, but they felt threatened. They felt exposed. They felt guilty. They felt stupid. So they pitch a mad fit. You see, their rebellious hearts had been exposed by the gospel. And again, we know, according to Romans 1, that Ungodly men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hate it when they're exposed. And whenever they are, they go into a rage. And we see this in the frenzy of these fools. Now, you must understand something about idolatry for a moment. May I remind you that idolatry is an abomination before the Lord. It's condemned in the first commandment. In Exodus 20, verse 3, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the water, under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, because unregenerate man is in rebellion to God, he refuses to love and serve him. And so what does he do? He creates for himself idols that will serve him. Sinful man fashions idols that he believes he can manipulate to somehow accomplish what he wants, satisfy his desires. A desire for, like we see here, for crops, for rain, many, many things. Uh, you'll see in other idol worship uh, the desire for sexual gratification, for pleasure. We have people that worship things that will help them escape from reality, things that they think will um, give them their desire for prosperity and, and, and wealth and power and eternal life. We know even in the Old Testament, when the Philistines would go into battle, they would put their idols up front, thinking that their idols would give them victory. And as a result, man worships all manner of things that he believes will give him what he wants. Literally, as we study the Bible, especially the issue of idolatry, we see that man will serve what he loves and he will then be ruled by the idols that he chooses to serve. And that could include things like sex, food, drugs, money, power. You see, idols vie for total allegiance. They dominate a person. They demand all of our time and money and health and families and so forth. And they distract us from worshiping and serving the one true God. And instead, what you find in idolatry is that our cravings ultimately begin to rule our lives. In fact, idolatry is at the very root of addictions. In James 1, verse 14, we read, that each one is tempted when... By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it brings, forth, brings birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. 
So whenever sinful man is challenged, whenever his idol is challenged by a competing idol, in this case, the true and the living God, he will react in violent rage. This is what happened at Ephesus. And so not only was their economic livelihood placed in jeopardy, but also their faith, their dependence in this idol that they had created to serve them. And isn't it interesting? No one likes to admit they've been believing a lie, right? No one wants to admit that. No one wants to admit, you know, all my life I believed something, but I've been hoodwinked. I've been deceived. And then to make it even worse, no one wants to admit that their deceased loved ones also believed a lie and are now in hell. That's a tough one to swallow. And only by God's grace will people ever embrace the truth. Well, finally, we see now a marvel of divine intervention. And this is fascinating. God now is going to move upon the mayor of Ephesus, the city clerk, to accomplish his purposes in calming down the crowd. And this guy must have been pretty smart because he lets them kind of fizzle out. They're they're going to shout here for two hours. And after that, now he's going to come and speak to them. Notice in verse 36. Actually, notice in let me catch it up here in verse 35. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, What man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? This was probably a reference to a meteor. You find that in their history of those days. Very often, whenever there was a meteor that came and struck the earth, they believed that it was a god and so forth. Oh, the conviction of fools. Verse 36, since then, these are undeniable facts. In other words, the truth about our goddess here, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. In other words, they weren't running down Artemis and so forth. They were just preaching the truth. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. In other words, this was kind of like a hanging party. This is like the sheriff saying, no, 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 no. We're going to let the judges handle this. Verse 40, for indeed we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair. In other words, we're afraid of, of, of the Romans here, of the Roman government. Since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. What a marvelous intervention. Isn't that great? I think it's just so interesting. Once again, God is protecting his fledgling church there in Ephesus. These dear saints. And don't you know, Paul must have just been flabbergasted. It's like, boy, I was going to go in there in front of, you know, 25,000 people and get them straightened out. And God uses the mayor to do that. Wow. What an adventure my life is. You know, I want you to notice something as we close this morning find it interesting, the Ephesian Christians didn't organize some political party to fight against the evils of idolatry. Do you see that? I don't see them joining hands with the Jews in some form of ecumenism to rid their region of the wickedness of Artemis worship. I don't see any picket lines. I don't see any protesters. I don't see any nonviolent demonstrations here. I don't see any marches or political posturing. I don't see any of that. And there's a fascinating principle that emerges here. Dear friends, our mandate is to proclaim, not to protest. The proclamation of the gospel, dear friends, is exceedingly more powerful than the protests of men. We must never forget that. 
And it's for this reason that I just refuse to participate in all these invitations to go down to Nashville and protest this and march on that or whatever. I just preach the word. That's what God's called me to do, called us to do. A social gospel is inevitably a distorted gospel. You see churches that bend to that sway, you'll find that they are long on politics and short on evangelism and utterly bereft of sound doctrine. I've never known a church otherwise that is committed to those things. Well, as we witness all that God did in those early days, dear Christian friend, May we celebrate the miracle of divine providence in our lives, knowing that the Good Shepherd is intimately involved in our life. And He's leading us all the way. May we also take seriously our mandate to remember the poor, especially other brothers and sisters in Christ, being vigilant to do all that we can to minister to their needs, those who are being persecuted. May we also beware of the madness of idolatry. Even as Christians, we can worship things that compete with the true and the living God. And we can serve them and love them more than we do God. What a hideous thing that would be. And finally, may we continue to marvel at the many ways that God intervenes in this world. To protect His own. To preserve His own. Isn't it wonderful that God has promised that He will build His church? My, how this longs, this causes me to long to, to see the Lord. Doesn't it you? Don't you get tired of the battle? I mean, I mean, I'm not giving up. Don't hear that. And I'm not saying that we need to give up and throw in the towel here. But boy, it's a long battle. The battle for the truth. It just, it just, it just never ends. But it's going to end someday. I long for the day when we can begin the victory celebration. Don't you? We get little glimpses of it. And our worship times with, you know, corporately and even privately. And as I was pensively reflecting upon these very issues at the conclusion of my time of study in the vault of study, I pinned these words and I'll close with this. Oh, the longings of my soul to see my Savior's face. To join the saints in endless praise for His redeeming grace. What joy belongs to every soul that basks in His great light, whose song extols the only one in whom we find delight. May every breath of every saint exalt His glorious name and for His kingdom give their life His saving truth proclaim. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for all that You teach us in Your Word. May we apply these things to our life, not only because we want to enjoy the adventure of living with Christ, but ultimately, Lord, we want to glorify You. And Lord, I would lift up those who are within the sound of my voice today who know nothing of the Savior that we love. Oh, God, do in them as you did in those idolaters in Ephesus and in Thessalonica and in Galatia and in Corinth and in Macedonia. And on and on it goes down through redemptive history. Oh, God, cause them by your grace to see the depths of their depravity, to see their sin and fall on their face before the Savior. Lord, may, be, may today be the day that they confess their sins and repent and deny themselves and be willing to take up a cross and follow You. May today be the day of their salvation. The day that they will experience the miracle of the new birth. I ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.